Mark chapter 16, let's begin in verse 1. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they lay him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he arose early on the first day of the week, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that, they, that he was alive and had seen, been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. And they, they will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we want what you want for us. We want every plan that you haven't that you have for us related to these verses to be realized in each one of our lives. We thank you that you want these things accomplished in us more than we want them for ourselves, Lord. So we open up our hearts to you. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to us and redirect us or convict us, comfort us, whatever it is that you want to accomplish, Lord. We want to recognize, Lord, that you measure maturity by what we obey, not merely what we know and agree with. So help us to be doers of the word, not just hearers only, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would use these verses for your glory in our lives. We thank you for the privilege of being able to turn to your eternal word that will outlive the heavens and the earth. We thank you that we're on the right side of truth this morning, those of us that know you. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be more mature because of these verses today. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, last week when we looked at Mark chapter 15, we saw the Lord Jesus say, it is finished on the cross, which means, literally he said, to telestai, means paid in full. When you had an outstanding debt and you finally made that last payment, on the paperwork they would stamp, 
to Telestai, paid in full. Before he said that, he, he said, I thirst. And they gave him something to drink because they had misunderstood when he had said, Eloi, Eloi, Labasabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The beginning of that is Eloi, Eloi, but his tongue was stuck to the roof of his mouth or his jaw so much, so we saw this from Psalm 22, that they had a hard time understanding him. And they said they thought that he was calling out for Elijah because Eloi sounds very close to Elijah. So we want to make sure when he pronounced that, for it is finished, to Telestai, we want to make sure that they understood. So that's when he said, I thirst. And so he could get some um, saliva and, and have his mouth be that which can properly say those things where others could hear. Because he wanted everybody to hear, including that centurion that was watching, including uh, everybody that was there watching, to hear him say, it is finished. Which is incredibly great news to think about that it is finished. He didn't say to be continued. He didn't say pick up where I left off 2,000 years from now. He didn't say you're going to have to do penance. He didn't say you're going to have to do really good to out, outdo your bad deeds and all those. He didn't say any of that. He said it's finished. So anytime anyone adds to that cross, it should offend us as believers because it's it's basically saying that Jesus wasn't telling the truth on that cross. And he, and he, he wasn't saying it is finished. You have, related to your sin debt, it's finished. You are positionally perfect before God as he looks at your life. That's the only way that he could have anything to do with you or I is because we have, have, we have the standing. He's counted us righteous. He's made that declaration. He's imputed righteousness to our account. So yes, we sin in a practical way. We fall short. He convicts us of those things. We confess those, those things to him related to having that fellowship with him be uh, where it needs to be. But in terms of our positional standing and how he sees us legally or our standing, we are 100% flawless. He, he, sees, he has to look through the blood of Christ to be able to see our lives because it has been applied to our account. And for that, we can worship him and thank him for all eternity because of how great, that's why it's good news. Because we can be acquitted. We can be justified. We can be counted as forgiven and acquitted because of his shed blood that's been put to our account. And that's the only way that we can receive a free gift. So during those last three hours, and it was dark from 12 to 3 p.m., that sin of the world was being placed on him, and the wrath that we deserve was being um, carried out and so forth. It wasn't, it, he said it is finished before he died. And he said in another place that we looked at that he had said all things had been accomplished so there was that wrath that was going on, that sin debt that was being paid. We usually think that, well, right the moment he died, that's when it was all the wrath was done and he, you know, all of those things. But it was that time on the cross there where all of that wrath was being poured out on him and it was dark and so forth. And that's when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And, and that was something that fulfilled prophecy, but it was actually a sincere question that he asked. And he was the only one in human history at that moment that's ever not had the Father as, have access to the Father. You know, of course, they had to have the gospel and all that to, to be able to have access. But every human being could have heard the gospel at some point. But he was all alone. The Father was not accessible to him. And it's, it's hard for us to understand that because 
we know that God is one God who reveals himself in three persons. So the mystery of it for us is how could that happen within the Godhead and how did all of that happen? That's something that we're going to be learning about, I believe, in the ages to come. Learning of the riches of his grace will include that, I believe. So we saw him pay that price and so forth. It ended, chapter 15, um, ended with him being put in the tomb. And it talked about Joseph of Arimathea. And look at verse 42, if you go back to 15. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And it talks about that Pilate marveled and all that, that he had already died and all of that. And then we're told in verse 46, that he bought fine linen, took, the, took him down and wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, observed where he was laid. So they knew exactly where he was. One of the things that I love about reading this account or any of the gospel accounts is that once he died, once he said it is finished and you know, of course, the Roman soldier that put that, that sword right through his rib cage to ensure that he died and all of that. Once that happened, then there's no more unloving hands touching him. Only loving hands. Joseph Arimathea, this was an expression of worship for him and love. Church history records that both Nicodemus, Nick at night as we like to call him, um, you know, Nick at night or Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were in the upper room, they were told, uh, in church history and became very, very prominent leaders in the early church. So these loving hands um, took care of him. We know that a disciple that loved him like that would take great care with his body and, and, and show that respect and that love in every way. I bet you the attention to detail was off the chart related to how he prepared his body and so forth and put him in his own tomb there. But at the end of verse 15, we're told that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. So they knew exactly where he was. And then we're told in verse 1, now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought, bought spices that they might come and anoint him. So it says, when the Sabbath was passed. And that ends at sunrise uh, on Sunday morning. So, the, the, I mean, uh, that's, when they can, that's when the shops open or whatever. And the Sabbath was already passed. It ends Saturday night, Friday night to Saturday night. But there's no shops open then. So they can purchase spices and all of that there. And so they did. So they might anoint him. And they knew that there was already something that had been done with Joseph of Arimathea. They knew that. But they wanted to add to it and all of that. It was just a sign of respect and, and love and all of that. What they didn't know is that Pilate authorized a Roman guard that we saw in Matthew when we looked at the Gospel of Matthew. And so that would consist of 16 men that were highly trained. They were trained in the javelin. They were tra trained in the small sword and the large sword. They were highly skilled uh, Roman military. And they would put ropes across the stone that was rolled into place. And it was rolled at a, de at, um, a decline, so it, it would be very difficult to roll that up and out of the way. 
It was meant to roll into place and to stay there. But they also put this rope across it, creating and putting wax and all of that, and they would, and other things that they would use to seal that. And it was basically saying, if you mess with the seal, you're messing with Rome. If you got caught messing with the seal, you would be immediately crucified. If they couldn't find you, if they knew the, the village you were from, they would crucify the whole village. That's how serious it was to mess with this seal. And they would sleep in shifts and all of that. There would always be somebody awake. They were used to going long periods of time without any sleep because that's what happens in warfare. It's not like these guys were um, you know, novices or, or wimpy guys or anything. These are the elite. You could, for us, it would be kind of like the special forces watching over something. I mean, you're not, you're not worrying about them failing or not fulfilling their duties. You know that they're solid guys. That's kind of the idea there. So this whole thing in, is going to unfold, and we saw it in Matthew where they, they go and tell the priests, and the priests, they have this plan, and they paid them a lot of money to be able to say that the disciples stole the body, which is, okay, you have all 16 people must have been sleeping then at that time. And then you have these fishermen. They're fishermen. They're not like great, you know, warriors or anything like that. They fishermen come at night and they move a five-ton stone uphill away from the stone. And that somehow doesn't wake up any soldiers. They're just out. They just must have been very sleep-deprived from the previous night or whatever. And they, they don't, they don't uh, hear that or anything. They don't notice and they, they stole the bodies. And then, you know, how would they know that the, this body was stolen by the disciples if they're sleeping? They don't know cameras. <laughs> the disciples didn't wake them up and say, hey, we just stole the body. See ya. I mean, there's no way that they could know that. It's ridiculous on its face. Uh, but that's what happened. Now, verse 2, we're told, very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen and they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. It was a very, very, very large uh, stone. They knew that that's not going to happen. They're, because they wanted to get in there to apply these spices to the Lord Jesus' body. He was already gone. And, the, and it, as it's been said, the stone wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out. It was, it was rolled away to let us in to see he had already been gone. It had already left there and already been raised from the dead. Verse 5. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. So this would be a long, formal robe. Other places tell us it was glistening. It would be shocking to see that. It would be startling to see that. Remember, it's sun's just coming up, and you see this, and it, it, and it just shows you how beautiful angels can be. And, of course, there's no wings that we see here, <laughs> but, um, you know, there's other scriptures that, that say that there can be that type of um, anatomy there for, for an angel. They're just ministering spirits, ministering to those that are the heirs of salvation, we're told, in Hebrews. And so they were very, very alarmed, it would not just startle you, but like what, I mean, the glistening of that, the white there of the robe and all of that sitting there, it would be very uh, scary. You'd be very afraid. Verse 6, but he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Notice the tenses in this verse. 
You seek Jesus who was crucified, but present tense, he is risen. He is not here. That's current. That's right, happening right then. It's not he was risen. He is risen because he currently right now is risen. He currently right now is alive. He's in the, that, that resurrected, uh, glorified body, the first fruits of salvation in the sense of a, a glorified body. Other bodies have been raised from the dead, but they died again. This is the first glorified body. He had the first glorified body that anybody had, and we're going to have a body just like him. We're told in 1 John, we don't know what we'll be, but we know that when we, when we see him face to face, we'll be like him. We're going to have that type of, same type of glorified body. Will we be able to change forms? I don't know. You know, you Transformer fans, maybe you're hoping for that. You know? I used to watch that. I was a little, it was a little bit old, you know, I was a little bit older to really get into it, but I appreciated it. But, I mean, he takes a different form. We're going to see that in the verses today with the, with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He took a different form. Maybe he'll let us take different forms. You know, that'd be, that'd be great. I'd love that. I'd like to take a different form right now. But, uh, you know, we have to wait till we get our, our, our new bodies. Amen? Okay, so he says, he is risen, present tense, he's not here. See the place where they laid him. Now, we're told in other gospels that the place, the, the part that was around his head was folded in a neat little thing by where his head was and all of that. And it was obvious to them that he was risen from everything that you might see. Now, we're not getting in the Shroud of Turin. Some of you really, ooh, the shout of Torn, is that real? Is it not real? They can't explain it. I don't know. It could have been. I, don't, I, don't, I haven't seen anything that would contradict Scripture with that. Um, I don't know. But I just know that they saw the place where they had laid him, and they, had, they saw it with their own eyes. That, that stone was rolled away so that we can see that he's not there, that the disciples could see that he's gone. Then he gives them instruction in verse 7, but go tell his disciples and Peter... That he, that he is going before you into Galilee, there you will see him as he said to you. Now, I like this, how he includes Peter here. Why does he do that? Well, Peter had just denied him three times. Had just denied him, and he's saying, go tell the disciples and Peter. He's singling out Peter. I believe this is an expression of God's grace. He didn't have to do this. But so when, when, when they're repeating this, they're saying, he said, tell the disciples and Peter. Just think with that, that act of grace. Just that little act of grace alone would have done in the heart of Peter. Of course, you know that Peter is battling all of this and battling the condemnation, the self-condemnation and all those things related to him denying the Lord and all of that. That would have been huge for him to, to hear. Now, they, to our knowledge, we they didn't go back to, to um, Galilee at first. In fact, we're going to see in other places, especially in Luke, where they're, they're here at least another week and, and, and all of that. So they didn't listen to that very much, and God works with them and all of that. He does see them in Galilee. He does see them. They see him and all of that. There was a pre-designated place that he'd already said, for the, we saw this in Matthew, that to go and, and I will meet you there. So God's just gracious, of course. Verse 8, So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So they fled, they were, they, and they trembled and were amazed. 
They didn't say anything to anybody, but eventually they're going to make it back to the disciples. Um, now, what's interesting here, now the whole rest of this chapter, if you have a different translation, you might have a little margin, in the, a little note in the margin or right there saying, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not contain Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. And I have to briefly deal with this. If you want to tune out for a couple minutes, if this doesn't interest you, you're, this is one, few to, one of the few times where I give you permission, okay? Uh, but I have to deal with this because this, I believe this is like an attack on, on the Word of God, okay? So I have to deal with this. And it has to do with whether or not this was in the original manuscripts and what manuscripts it was in and all of that. And one of, the people that say that this doesn't belong, they still include it, but they still you know, put a little note in there which is like, why even put it in there? Why even put the verses in there if you're going to put, you know, the, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not have these verses? It's almost like, you know, it's just trying to cover all your bases, I guess. But one of the things they say is that in these verses, Mark uses Greek words he doesn't use anywhere else in the gospel. Okay? They also say that some of the early church fathers indicate that most manuscripts in their day, we're talking really early on, uh, didn't have these verses. They also say that the Greek grammar, um, the way related to the, 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 how it's masculine and feminine and all that, in the transition between verses, verses 7 and 8 and verses 9 and following, are kind of go against each other. And um, you can ask me after the service for more specifics on that if you want to know that, what that's talking about. But also they say that it's kind of strange that Mark talks about Mary Magdalene in the way of She's the one that he, that he cast out seven demons out of her, out of her when he already had talked spoken at length about Mary Magdalene. So that's kind of odd. And, and all those things. So I personally don't believe <laughs> that most of those reasons stand up to, to, to scrutiny when you really look at them. And I won't get into them now, but there is a book I want to give you, a name, a title, an author, if you want to look into this in depth, or at least maybe in the future you may want to. The book is called Counterfeit or Genuine by David Fuller. And he gets into this passage. That's Counterfeit or Genuine by David Fuller. And he gets into it in depth. And he gets into the other one in, in John where, you know, he writes on the ground. And that's the one, the other one that they, one of the other ones they cast doubt on and all of that. So you can dive into that. Um, I will say that only one church father actually said something related to that these verses were not in the manuscripts at his time that he saw. But many, many church fathers um, say that, that, that this, these verses were there. And, and seven of them predate the manuscripts that they quote as the most reliable manuscripts. So there's two families of manuscripts that they point to and say those are the most reliable, but there's church fathers that predate those manuscripts that say that verses 9 through 20 belong there. So it, it doesn't make any sense to me. Also, Mark said before chapter 16, in end of chapter uh, 15, there are many, many words that are used in those set of verses that, are, that Mark didn't use any other time in the Gospel of Mark, that they accept. So if you're using those, that kind of rule, then, then you shouldn't even believe chapter 15 either. And there are verses in, in Ephesians that... You know, that Paul used that used Greek words that aren't found in any other of his writings, but we don't doubt Ephesians. So there's, there's just a lot of um, reasons why I reject it. And so I don't think that you should have any doubts when you read Mark 16 
And, and I think a lot of it has to do with the criticism, has to do with the content in it. As we'll get to in a moment, they, they don't want these things to be inspired by God. I think some of them that originally have cast these doubts on this. And, you know, it's, it's noteworthy that why would Mark end the gospel in verse 8? Why would you do that? I mean, look at, look at verse 8 and 16. We just read it. So he went out quickly, fled from the tomb, for they, or they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they resemb- trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Then the book ends. <laughs> it makes no sense. Why would you end the book that way? Just leave out the resurrection and that little minor detail. I think it's pretty significant there. Um, so anyway, I just, I don't, I don't recognize that critique, and you can, again, dig into it on your own. Um, so we'll just start verse 9. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And one of the things I want to focus on in verse 10 is the tenses as, when it says, as they mourned and wept, that they're continuous, there were continuous action verbs there. So it's saying they continuously mourned and wept. And we don't really see this clear of a picture of their mourning and weeping and sorrow as we do in Mark. Anywhere else. It's very clear that they were very sad, very somber that he had died and all of that and they were without hope. And then in verse 11, he adds to their, um, their pessimism there. And it says, And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. Yeah, you, you know, I know you're all excited and you say you saw this and all that. You could have been completely misunderstood. Maybe you uh, hallucinated Mary, you know. <laughs> Um, we have no idea what you experienced or whatever, but we don't believe you. But then he, it adds to it in verse 12. After that, he appeared to an, in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. This is revealed in, in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus took a different form there, and they didn't recognize him. And he went through all the scriptures, beginning at Moses, and showed them how the Christ must suffer and all of that. And then they invited him to come to eat with them to stay with them, and when he broke bread, they recognized and their eyes were open. Did they see the, the, the scars in his hands, or did he just change the form that he was in? We don't, we don't know, but we know that they recognized him, and then he disappeared. And those guys came and declared it to, to them, and, and, and were told in verse 13, and they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. See, they were equal opportunity skeptics, not just rejecting what Mary said, but also what these other two had told them. These are the guys that Jesus chose. These are the guys. That, I mean, remember, we highlighted over and over again how many times he told them, the Son of Man must be betrayed in the hands of men, suffer, be crucified, and raised after three days. He said it over and over and over again. They were trained to think of a political Savior, not a spiritual Savior. They were focused on all the verses where it said that David's descendants going to rule on the throne of David forever. Instead of Daniel, which said that the, that the Son of Man is going to be cut off, the Messiah is going to be cut off, but not for himself. Or, or David writing in Psalm 16, who said that you will not let your Holy One see corruption, meaning that you will not be in that tomb long enough to have corruption happen and all of that. So it was very hard for them 
It was very hard for them to accept. By the way, if you were adding this, because the theory is, if you were adding these verses in the end of Mark, you know, you want to finish Mark. If you're adding those, why would you add all this bad stuff? I mean, you, would, you, would, you wouldn't include that. So it's ridiculous. Verse 14. Later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Now there was a point like a week before this where the ten were there. Thomas wasn't there. Judas was gone, so there was not going to ever be twelve in that way. So Thomas is gone, and then they, he comes again when Thomas is there. This is what he's talking about in verse 14. When Thomas is there, and he appears to them, and he rebukes them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. That's really the, that's really the issue there. Unbelief and hardness of heart. Now they had control over that, right? Why is he rebuking you if you don't have any control over it? Obviously, you had a chance to not have that kind of heart. You chose to not have that kind of heart. And he's, he's rebuking them and showing them that they need to have hearts that are full of faith and not have hard hearts. Then he gets to the Great Commission. I love this in verse 15. Now, in every gospel, there's different way that God reveals this Great Commission. When you compare them side by side, you should do that sometime. It's very interesting how they're a little bit different, but they're all saying the same thing. Verse 15 And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's what he's called us to do. The first word, go. (laughs) Go into all the world. Not go get all the world to come into the church to preach the gospel. He says, go into all the world. And later on in the book of Acts, they didn't want to leave Jerusalem. He would already told them, you're going to be my witnesses in Acts chapter 1. In Jerusalem, Samaria... Judea, and the uttermost parts of the earth. That was the plan from all along. That was going to fulfill the prophecy that he gave to Abraham multiple times about his descendants will be like the, the sands of the seashore. Innumerable. Because everyone that trusts in the Messiah by faith is, has Abraham as their father in the sense of a humanly example of what faith looks like because Abraham believed what God said and it was credited to him as righteousness just like with us we have righteousness credited to our account by faith and that's how we're children of Abraham. And, and Romans gets into that and, and it's beautiful. So he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, not some creatures, not some people versus others. Everybody needs the gospel. Everybody needs to be saved. Everybody are sinners that need to be saved. Now, he says something that is controversial in verse 16. He says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Now, some people try to use this to say, we have to be water baptized to be saved. He says it right there. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Well, first of all, he could have been meaning a positional baptism. When we believe on Jesus Christ, we trust in him. As I mentioned, we're positionally made perfect. We're in Christ positionally. Ephesians talks about that over and over again. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, in Christ. He could have been meaning that. I personally believe he is talking about water baptism though. And he's describing the life of a believer. He's not saying it has to be, you have to be water baptized to be saved because notice that the last part of the verse, he says, but he who does not believe will be condemned. He doesn't say, but he who does not believe and is not baptized will be condemned. 
So he's describing what believers are like. Believers are those that place their trust in Jesus Christ, and then they obey what what God said to do is one of the first things to do as a Christian, and that's become water baptized to, to make a public profession. You know, in many places in this world today, you are not cut off, and I go over this when we have water baptisms, you're not cut off and ostracized and, and rejected by your family until you're baptized. They believe you can say anything you want, but when you're willing to publicly go out and make that public profession of faith, and be water baptized, you're not serious. You know, altar calls coming forward, that didn't happen till the 16th, 17th century. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's, it's very appropriate. But the, in that day, the public profession of faith was getting baptized. So it went along with salvation in how people uh, made that public profession of faith. But if it was required to go to heaven, it would say, whoever does not believe and is not baptized, it will be condemned. Very important that we see that. Now, in verse 17, he gets to signs. Verse 17, And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. The Christian life is a supernatural life. You can't read the book of Acts and miss the miraculous. You ever wondered, how come I read the book of Acts and it seems like that's normal for them? Well, first thing we need to understand is that the book of Acts, the events in the book of Acts happened over a span of 30 years. So when we're reading it, it seems like, man, every single day there's a miracle or whatever. It's recording events over 30 years. That's the first thing we need to understand. Secondly, we need to understand that there's no end to the book of Acts on purpose. Because the book of Acts is still going on. What, are, what chapter are we in right now? 10,246? I don't know, but it never ends. And so what, what's happened over time is that we have taken out all the supernatural things and made it into a cerebral, all-in-your-head type thing. But if you take an honest look at Scripture, you'll never see that you'll see the supernatural happen. And I believe that's one of the reasons why there's been an attack on this section because I believe that people are afraid of the supernatural. I believe that some leaders don't like the supernatural because they can't control it. They can't get control because there's things that happen out of, that God does that is not part of your plan. It's beautiful when you're used to it. When you're not used to it, it's a threat to you because it's not a part of your agenda. There are healings that are happening in our church. People are getting healed miraculously of things. It's not having nothing to do with me. So if I was trying to control everything and trying to have everything be how I could understand it or how I could explain it or it'd be part of what I could say I'm being led to do related to the church, then I would have problems because it's just happening. People are getting healed. There's miracles that are happening. We need to be more willing to share those things. So the, the, the Christian life is a supernatural life. And notice he says these signs will follow those who believe. So they're not signs that don't follow unbelievers. They're follow, the signs that follow believers. So if we're a believer, there's going to be signs that God wants to follow. And what's he saying? He says at the end of the verses there in verse 20, 
You can look down there for a second. He says, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. What's the word? It's the gospel. That's what he's talking about. The word is the gospel in this context. Context is a great commission. What are we communicating when we communicate the good news? We're communicating how to get saved. We're communicating how a person receives Christ. When you go into an area that's never had the gospel before, it's amazing the signs that follow that. And you see it through the book of Acts. He, he followed what the disciples did, Paul and Silas and Barnabas and all those different, Stephen. And they, he followed what they did with signs. Look at Philip. Philip was a deacon. He went into this area of Samaria and there was all these things that were happening, miraculous things that no one can explain. The disciples could have gotten threatened by that. Wait a minute, this isn't, our, well, this isn't what our plan was. Philip, you didn't check with us. You didn't check with our master plan and our calendar. You didn't even get on our, our Outlook calendar, our Google calendar, and check with us to see if you could do these things. They didn't get upset with him. They were praising God. There was an unpredictability that happened in the church back then. They had no, Peter had no idea that God was going to give him a vision while he's on that roof in Joppa. He's at Simon the Tanner's house, and it revealed God's showing him you need to go with these men because God wants to show him that, that the, the Gentiles are just as much a part of the church as the Jewish believers. He didn't know anything about that, that that was going to happen. That just happened. That was supernatural. Before he could even finish preaching the gospel, they got saved and baptized with the Holy Spirit. That wasn't a part of his plan. And then the leadership back, he has to go explain himself to the leaders. It would probably have any other person besides one of the original apostles. They would have had a hard time talking to those leaders in, in Jerusalem. He had to go and explain himself. And they had to be flexible with this. They couldn't plan that. They couldn't contain it. See, our lives are supposed to be marked by things that are not explained naturally. And it's not just these particular signs. It's just situations. It's just being in certain situations and being ready and tuned in, spiritually tuned in the situation and being ready. And all of a sudden, you're just in the middle of a supernatural thing and God's doing incredible things. Because if it was up to our planning, we would get the glory in part. But he doesn't want us to get the glory. He wants the glory. Do you know that signs can happen in your house with your kids? To, to, to show them the, the, the truth of the gospel, that you could pray for healing and they could get healed. And that's not these same signs that are following the gospel for unbelievers. I understand that. But God still, he still heals believers. There just should be a sensitivity to the supernatural leading of the Spirit. You know, we planted the church a little over eight years ago. I can almost tell you that there's nothing that's happened that was according to what I had planned or what I had thought would happen, or guessed what would happen. It hasn't happened how I expected at all. And I was told so much over and over again, it's not going to happen how you think it's going to happen. And I'm like, yes, okay, I hear that, I hear that. I mean, it's probably going to somehow have a little bit to do with how I'm thinking. No, nothing. I could go down a list of things I had no clue. Because he knows what's best for this church. He knows how he wants to reach people in this area and around the world through this church. The smart thing for any leader is to yield to him because he's the one that said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So if we're all yielding to him, not having an agenda and letting him directly lead the church, 
then he's gonna do, we're going to see what he wants to do. And he does such a great job better than us related to our plan. So it requires all of us to be sensitive to his leading. Notice he says, in my name they will do these. What does that mean? Does it just mean that I say in the name of Jesus before I pray or before I cast out a demon or whatever? No. It's more than that. When you, we are walking and, and, and working these things in his name, it means that we're Christians. It means that we have the authority that he has delegated to us. He works through leadership. He works through us being led by the Holy Spirit. So we have to, yes, we're going to pray in Jesus' name, but we're praying in his authority. We're praying in his character. It means his character, his essence, who he is. We're praying with his dispatched authority to, uh, through our lives, and we are coming in his name, not our own name. And he says, first of all, there, it will cast out demons. Do you think you ever might be part of an exorcism? God's word says that there are people that are bound by demons. And I see it in the news all the time. There's more and more exorcisms and Satan worship and uh, satanic Christian clubs in, or not Christian clubs, satanic clubs in high school. That'd be interesting. But they'd probably allow that too. Satanic clubs in high school. I mean, more and more activity. Having whole festivals where they come out and cut themselves and worship Satan. I mean, it's, getting, it's growing more and more and more and more. And we have to recognize that every Christian has the capacity to say, come out in Jesus' name. And they come out. And then we need to lead them to Christ. We don't want them to come back with more demons than they had originally had. So just because someone acts a certain way and we think they might be demon-possessed doesn't mean they're demon-possessed. They have to manifest biblically in the way that God reveals a, a demon-possessed person manifests. So we have to know that. So it, that's a whole other issue, and you know we're going to be getting into that when we get into the book of Acts a lot more. At one point, Paul just gets irritated, this free advertising that this <laughs> demon-possessed girl is giving him, saying what she was saying was actually true, but he didn't need any of that advertising or help from the enemy. He just cast a demon out. I mean, that can, that can happen. They will speak with new tongues. That is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Not everybody receives that gift. We're told in 1 Corinthians 12 that are all apostles, are all prophets, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret the obvious answer, the expected answer is no. But it is something that is in the church, and it is something that happens. You can read 1 Corinthians 14 and learn all about it or get our, the teaching on when we went through Corinthians or we went through the in-depth study on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You can learn what that is and all that, but that is something that follows unbelievers, I mean believers rather. They will take up serpents. Now some people say this can be translated and they will, if they are forced to take up serpent, serpents, they won't be hurt. And that could be true. Now we've seen the abuse of all this where people are having services where they're handling snakes and all this and they're getting, they're getting bit and saying, oh, I'm not affected, you know, and all that. That's tempting the Lord. That's not in the context of preaching the gospel. That's the context here. So if you're out there preaching the gospel, you know, Paul was on the island of Malta. He was bit by a viper. Didn't hurt him. That's the kind of the idea. If they, if they drink anything deadly, it's not, you know, obviously purposely. It's talking about accidentally drinking something deadly. We can pray and ask God to, to cancel out the effects of that chemical in our bodies, and, and God can keep us from having anything happen to us. He can do that. I've had a bee sting me. 
and I didn't have an EpiPen, and that was before EpiPens were the cost of a car. Um, I didn't have my EpiPen, and I just laid my hand on that and said, God, just touch me, heal me, and I was fine. And so God can do that. And they will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. This is something that is in the church. We were told in, in James chapter 5, if anyone's sick among you, have them call for the elders of the church, have them come forward, we'll anoint them with oil, and, and the prayer of faith will save the sick, and all that God heals today. But, but this is specifically talking about when we're out there preaching the gospel. We're out there, and we communicate the gospel and all of that, and someone is sick, and we pray for them, and they get healed, and God uses that to show the validity of what we're saying and, and back up what we're saying. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. So I think a lot of the skepticism related to these verses has to do with those signs. They don't want anything to do with those signs. I can't explain it. I can't control it. It's not happening in my life or in our church, and so let's just say it's not part of the Bible. That's convenient. The issue is, though, all these things, the reason why whatever position you take, let's say you come and you say, you know, I don't believe verses 9 through 20 are in, they're, they're part of Mark. The thing is, all these things are repeated elsewhere in the scriptures. The resurrection accounts, the, these signs, all these things are found other places and all of that. I'm not saying it's, a, it's a, not an important issue and all of those things or it's not important to, to grapple with. But the point is, all these things are taught other places in Scripture, and obviously, you know, God balances his word with the rest of his word. Scripture interprets Scripture. It's a very powerful, foundational uh, principle related to interpreting the Bible in a, in, a, in a way that's responsible, is understanding that I need to balance Scripture with Scripture. Verse 19. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. So when you sit down, that means that your work is finished. There was no chairs in the tabernacle or in the temple. The priests were constantly working, constantly doing the work that God had called them to. They didn't have a finished work that they were, you know, looking at. They, their work continued. Jesus' work is finished. Even though he's sitting down, it's finished in terms of the the, the price that was paid for our salvation, he's still interceding for us. So he still, his ministry of intercession is happening, but in terms of sitting down, the only time we see him stand up is at the martyrdom of, of, of Stephen and another place in Scripture too. But he stands up when Stephen is getting martyred and those stones are falling on him and he's about to go to be with Jesus. He can, God opens up heaven. He can see in that other dimension and he says, look, Jesus is standing. He's standing right there. He's standing for the first martyr. I think it's beautiful. Another expression of his grace and all of that. But he sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 20. And they went out and preached everywhere. Yeah, everywhere in Jerusalem. <laughs> pretty much. Uh, but it was hard for him to get outside of that. God had to bring suffering for that to happen. They had to bring, he had to bring persecution. He had to allow persecution to happen to get them out and to start moving all over the place. So they went and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. So that's what happened. Again, it's been a great study in the book of Mark. Remember, Mark's abbreviated. What was the key word we saw over and over again? You, you uh, um, uh, students in the inductive Bible study class, you should really be knowing this by now. Key word, immediately. 
immediately, immediately. Go and count all many times the word immediately. It's a condensed, fast-paced, fast-action gospel. Beautiful picture there. Most likely from Peter's uh, account that Mark recorded there. It's beautiful, beautiful picture. Looking forward to the next book, which will be, we're going to take a break. Take a break in, the, in our study through the New Testament, and we're going to start next week, Lord willing, with the book of Nehemiah, because we are going through a building project. We are starting a building project. There are unique challenges with the building project, and I really believe the Lord's led me to focus on Nehemiah for a season before we come back to the New Testament. So read ahead. Read ahead in Nehemiah and, and just be ready, because who knows what the Lord's going to have for us related to that book. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for us being able to watch the Lord Jesus' life and his teaching and his heart. Lord, we want to be like him so much, God. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to walk in the supernatural. I pray, Lord, those that have never been baptized with the Holy Spirit, that they would be baptized. Those of us that have been baptized that maybe haven't asked to be refilled, with the Holy Spirit, would remember to ask to be refilled. Thank you, Jesus, that you said uh, that if we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Lord, and we recognize that we don't, that, that, that we don't ask for the Holy Spirit when we're getting saved. We're asking for forgiveness, Lord. So help us to ask for your refilling. Help us ask God to to, to be yielded to you in any given moment, to be an extension of you and to, to be willing to let you work through our lives so that we can um, have the supernatural represented following us preaching the gospel, God. So we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.